This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, every year, YWCA's around the country host Stand Against Racism campaigns. The goal is to raise awareness of institutional and structural racism and build community among people working for racial justice. The YWCA's overall mission is to eliminate racism and empower women. YWCA Seattle King Snohomish recently held their 11th annual event. The theme was Journalism, Race, and Gender. It featured a panel discussion on racism and gender bias in the news media. The panel included journalist Naomi Ishisaka with the Seattle Times, Marcus Harrison Green of the South Seattle Emerald, and Florangela Davila with KNKX. Among the themes of their discussion, the responsibility journalism has to represent and reach all communities, to amplify injustice, and to hold power to account. Ongoing efforts to confront the status quo in mainstream media, marked by progress and setbacks. Media complicity in upholding racist norms for generations, and the ways in which local journalism is threatened. The program started with a presentation on the legacy of black-owned media outlets in Seattle, featuring the Seattle Medium, represented by Chris Bennett Jr., and Converge Media, represented by Omari Salisbury. This 11th annual Seattle area Stand Against Racism event was hosted on April 29th by Town Hall Seattle and the People of Color Executive Council of YWCA Seattle King Snohomish. Please note, this is the final episode of KUOW's Speakers Forum. Many thanks to all the Seattle area organizations that welcomed us into their venues and digital spaces over the past 20 years. You filled our broadcasts with a diverse, informative, and entertaining mix of speakers. We are grateful for your support and collaboration and wish you continued success in the future. You'll find a list of helpful YWCA resources on our website, kuow.org slash speakers. The event was hosted by POCEC member Lou Rochelle Brim Atkins. As we all strive to stand against racism individually and collectively, remember that it truly takes all of us. Each one of us has a part to play in dismantling systemic racism so that we can ensure every person in our community can live free from the negative impacts of racism. This year, we're going to talk about race, gender, and journalism. 
focusing on the wide array of local media working to change harmful and racist narratives. While the mediums may have changed from printed pamphlets to TikTok videos, media undoubtedly still holds a strong influence in every aspect of our lives. It educates, aggravates, informs, and sparks conversation. For all too long, the narratives have been controlled by those who support and uphold the status quo within mainstream media. With the diversification and expansion of media, the stories and history of BIPOC communities are being told by us and spread across the globe. And while historically media has been used as a tool of oppression, it can also be used as a tool of liberation and empowerment especially in the fight for racial and gender equality. Before our panelists start to talk about these issues in more depth, we wanted to showcase what this looks like in our own community and focus on the legacy of Black media in Seattle. The legacy of Black-owned media in Seattle has been overlooked for too long, but it's always been here to serve the African-American community. Seattle Medium is an important part of this legacy. Started in 1970 by Chris Bennett Sr., it is one of the oldest black-owned newspapers in Seattle. Today, it remains family-owned and operated and continues to deliver news that matters to black communities across the region. There was a, a void, there was a need in the community to have a publication that really could speak from our perspective as black people and tell our truth and tell our sides of the story. People from the community came to my father and said, hey, you know, we really could use a, a publication that really is from the community and by the community. And he took that to heart. And with $30 and a prayer, he started the newspaper. Our first edition was on January 15, 1970, which was MLK's birthday. When you talk about the black press, the black press in America was founded on um, the notion that um, we intend to plead our own cause. Too long others have pled our cause for us, which means that we need to have our own voices. We need to speak for ourselves and we need to be able to have institutions and communications outlets in our community that really can tell our story from our perspective. News is a documentation of history and the person who is telling that narrative is gonna dictate what that reality is to people in the future. Yes. And so we don't have people who look like you, who look like right. me, who live in this community telling our story from our perspective. It's gonna get distorted, it's, it's gonna get omitted, and we're gonna have to be dealing with uh, uh, untrue history. Who's gonna tell those stories if we're not here to tell Amen. them? Who's gonna tell the stories about Judge Hightower when she was running for <laughs> office as a write-in candidate? and won that election. Who's gonna tell the stories about our kids and our future? And who's gonna tell the stories about not just the, the negative stuff that's going on in our community, but the positive things that are going on in our community. Absolutely. And so that's why black media is important. Converge Media was built on this legacy. A local news and media company started in 2017 by Omari Salisbury. It is now a leading producer of culturally relevant videos, podcasts, and street-level news coverage in Seattle and across the Pacific Northwest. Uh, 
I've, I've had almost a 20-year career in media, and so I spent the majority of my career uh, overseas. Um, and so I've, I've been to about 60 countries altogether, 30 of them on the continent of Africa. Those are the people that, that I've looked up to my whole career, black, black media house owners that, that own media on an international scale and impact tens or if not hundreds of millions of people. And I just knew that um, when I came home, I wanted to literally take this wealth of experience um, that I've learned and be able through media to uplift my community. Actually, Converge wasn't envisioned as like a news platform. Converge was envisioned as just a distribution platform for content creators around the Pacific Northwest. Because see what happens, we have brilliant people in our community, right? How can I create a platform for our community to uplift content creators across the Pacific Northwest? And so Converge was never about me. Converge was about everybody else. Somehow through coverage of the protests and things, you know, I've, I've become focused and centered on it. Wow. You know, this is why black media is important because yes. in crisis, again, crisis in the protests, crisis in COVID, mm -hmm. people can turn to an internationally respected and awarded media outlet that's black and represents their community for the best news and information. The power of communities of color-run media has propelled the movement for accountability and justice. There's a vast array of media outlets working to change false narratives by telling stories that matter to our communities by folks who are from and represent those communities. Black-owned media in Seattle and beyond will continue to play an important role in our community today and for generations to come. Now it's time to hear from our panelists who will take a deep dive into the intersectional issues of racism and journalism. Naomi Ishisaka, Marcus Harrison Green, and Florangela Davila. The conversation will be led by Naomi Ishisaka, who has over two decades of experience in journalism and photography. I can imagine that many of you remember Colors Northwest where Naomi was editor-in-chief for eight years. I loved that magazine and miss it. Or you've seen her work in the Seattle Times, where she is a social justice columnist and assistant managing editor for diversity, inclusion, and staff development. Please welcome Naomi. Thank you so much um, to the YWCA, to Lou Rochelle, and particularly the POC EC for opening space for this conversation today. It's such an honor to be with you all. Um, first, I just wanted to say that to start that we are critical of journalism because we want the work we do is important and we want it to be better. At our best, journalists shape what we know about the world around us, hold power to account, and can amplify injustices the public doesn't know about yet. But local journalism is under great threat. The rise of Google and Facebook, media consolidation, hedge fund ownership have contributed to gutting local journalism across the country and given rise to ghost papers and news deserts. Seattle has been impacted by this as well. In recent years, we've lost one daily newspaper, seen our alternative weekly struggle and diminish, lost magazines that serve specific audiences, including the one Lou Shell mentioned that I edited for many years, Colors Northwest, 
as well as lost online sources like the Seattle Globalist, which thoughtfully covered people of color and immigrants in our city. A 2018 UNC study showed that 1,300 communities are now news deserts with no local news coverage at all. This is bad for all of us. But what a, lot, a lot of what is threatening journalism and why communities, why many communities do not trust mainstream media is also self-inflicted. It's the self-inflicted part that we're going to be talking about today. For almost all of our history, U.S. journalism has not fulfilled its promise of, quote, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. In fact, it actively reinforced and upheld white supremacy and racism for generations. The media justified terrorism like lynchings, and then later the system of mass incarceration we have today as just two examples of many. More and more media organizations are beginning to take responsibility for their roles in perpetuating racism, including the Seattle Times. Last month, we published the first installment of a project to look back critically at our coverage. Our recent multimedia project called A1 Revisited looked at how we not only failed to accurately report on the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, but I'll apologize for the impact of our coverage. But racism still deeply permeates the media industry. Thankfully, there's now greater acknowledgement that, quote, objectivity is fundamentally subjective. But nonetheless, media is still a white-dominated industry where voices of marginalized people are too few and far between. This disparity in who reports and decides the news affects what stories are seen as worthy to tell or what's considered relatable. It affects how racial stereotypes are perpetuated, and it affects who is served by the policies and systems we create. One example of this is the coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and people. I wrote a few months ago how the media gave wall-to-wall coverage to Gabby Petito's disappearance, while the lives of thousands of Native women and girls who've gone missing in recent years have been ignored. According to the Justice Department, Native American women are up to three times as likely to experience violence, sexual assault, or stalking as any other racial group. But you would not know this from media coverage. The so-called missing white woman syndrome has life or death implications for women and girls of color. Another recent example of this is is how the media reported on Ukrainian refugees and how refugees from Syria or migrants from the southern border are depicted. The differences in portrayals shape our policies and how much empathy and support we offer into which groups. But not all is grim. As you saw in the video earlier, we're fortunate to have in our region outstanding journalists of color who center the voices and concerns of marginalized people every day in their work and transform and shape our society in the process. Two of the best are here with me today, Marcus Harrison Green and Philangela Davila. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Florangela Davila is the news director of the local NPR station KNKX, where she's transformed the newsroom and is broadening the content to look and sound more inclusive and more racially and ethnically representative of the region. Previously, she led a similar transformation at Crosscut, KCTS9. Florangela is the former race and immigration reporter at the Seattle Times and was named as one of Seattle's most influential people by Seattle Magazine. Very well deserved. Marcus Harrison Green is the publisher of the South Seattle Emerald and a columnist with the Seattle Times. Growing up in South Seattle, he experienced firsthand the impact of one-dimensional stories on marginalized communities, which taught him the value of authentic narratives. After an unfulfilling stint in the investment world during his 20s, Marcus returned to his community with a newfound purpose of telling stories with nuance, complexity, multidimensionality, with the hope of advancing social change. This led him to become a writer and found the South Seattle Emerald, 
He was awarded the Seattle Human Rights Commission's Individual Human Rights Leader Award for 2020. Please welcome Florangela and Marcus. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Naomi. So I wanted to get started by just helping the audience understand how in your, in your experience, in your perspective, the media has been used to perpetuate stereotypes about and justify violence against BIPOC communities. Marcus, when you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I, I'll say, um, you know, this kind of hits close to home, but uh, for me, it continues to be how uh, Black folks are, are, are treated, how the, the framing uh, around us, the framing around our, our suffering many times. I, uh, I tell this story quite often, and so I'll tell it again. I remember when I first started out at the Emerald, I was doing a piece on uh, collecting, uh, uh, collecting, you know, good thoughts about uh, people, collecting people's opinions on, on what was good about South Seattle. And I remember talking to a young man and he said, there's nothing good. Uh, about South Seattle and there's nothing good about, you know, me. And I'm like, I was like, oh, okay. What, <laughs> uh, why is that? And he was like, well, you know, folks say that I'm, uh, you know, I'm a savage. That's what, that's what they say about us. You know, and he was talking about the media at the time. And uh, about two weeks later, uh, tragically, I found out that the young man had been shot and killed. And I always wondered, and I still wonder to this day, this is, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do is that if there was a different narrative out there about him, about uh, about his community, about the people who look like him. Um, would there have been some alternatives for him? Would he have thought that there was maybe a different narrative that he would have attached himself to as opposed to the narrative that he was um, essentially an animal, right? Um, we are what we continually you know, feed ourselves and what we continually consume in our media constantly. And you know, whether we are aware of it or not, um, and so the fact that many people, uh, like that young man internalize, uh, these false, quite frankly, narratives uh, about them and, and treat them as true and, and sort of go down, you know, uh, you know, pathways that to me, those are the things that, um, you know, the, you might say unintended consequences or perhaps intended consequences of not presenting, um, you know, stories in, in, in ways that are, you know, that are truly, you know, accurate in terms of allowing people to be their full humanity. And I think that's when you have uh, anti-Black coverage, when you have racist coverage, that is exactly what it is. It's a denial of somebody's full humanity. Thank you, Marcus. <clears throat> Lorangela? Yeah, absolutely. Marcus, thank you for saying what you said. You know, um, I have, I still hold on to this memory of, I was in a car with a reporter uh, and uh, who lived in Magnolia. And I remember we happened to be driving down through the Rainier Valley and he characterized it as ugly. Oh, so ugly. And I remember uh, not saying anything. Uh, that was then. This is now. I probably would have said something, but uh, this was. I don't know, 10, 10, 12 years ago. And I remember thinking, uh, this is where I live. 
And this looks so much like the apartments that I grew up in, in Southern California. And I think part of what is um, changing, I'll say that, but what we've seen having been in this local market for a long time is just being ignored, just being dismissed, uh, just being boxed into certain stereotypes. Um, For example, uh, my ears now perk up whenever I hear Spanish on the broadcast in our shows. Growing up, I can't tell you when I've ever heard the Spanish language on an English language uh, station. Um, I could go to the Spanish language stations, but what does that do to uh, communities, bilingual communities, name any community when you don't hear your language? when it's not seen as something of your, of who you are, something to be proud of. I think uh, what is changing is there are more people in the room who are asking these questions and are pushing back and are challenging what has been the typical way of covering things. Philangela, can you talk a little bit more about how communities themselves when they uh, like how that kind of attitude about Rainier Valley for example like manifests itself in coverage when you kind of approach a community with that sense of like this is not something that's desirable or has any value or worth I know I also live in Rainier Valley so and yeah I know I think all three of us do which is actually a really nice (laughs) common thing we have I mean I think what's hard is you have two almost battles that you have to do You have to convince your editors at the time that there's value in sending us and giving us time to explore stories that may not be apparent, that may not be coming from a press release. And that may not be the typical narrative, like we're going into these communities after violence is struck, um, which is oftentimes the starting point when when we parachute into undercovered communities. Uh, But then the flip side is when you do go into communities, there's trust to be built. Because the only time you've seen the media trucks and the reporters and people taking time and sitting in people's homes is in the aftermath of those um, violent situations. And and I'm not saying those stories shouldn't be covered. We can talk a lot about the framing of those stories that have been passed, but those are certainly newsworthy stories that we need to be covering. But um, an anecdote I used to talk about a lot when I was teaching was uh, the first first snowfall in the city. And how sometimes I would see the editors assign the photographers to the top of Queen Anne because it was actually easier to get to from where the uh, the offices were located. Or the editor had just left their home on Queen Anne and saw a really joyful scene of people playing in the snow and that looked really pretty. And if you don't have people coming from other parts of town who have that same thing, I can tell you there are a lot of pretty snow scenes in Rainier Valley, um, or you don't have photographers who live close by who could walk over and get that photo, uh, that is a missed opportunity. And so when communities don't see themselves holistically profiled in all different ways, which is why I'm so happy that the South Seattle Emerald exists because it comes from a place of we see you and we want to hear your stories in all dimensions. Um, that's how you build trust. That takes time. It's not, uh, it's not something quick and dirty, which is often, you know, journalism is a profession under deadlines. And we're trying to get the story right. But sometimes getting the story right, getting the right story takes time. 
Marcus, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I mean, just a couple of amens to, to Florangela and, and thank you for the shout out. But yeah. Um, so kind of follow on, follow up on that, that, um, that thread. Um, what are some examples of media double standards when it comes to how communities are covered or not? Um, and can you talk a little bit about who decides which of these stories gets attention in the media and which ones are sort of cast aside or seem deemed not important? Marcus, you want to start? Yeah, uh, I think a a fairly clear example for me uh, was a shooting that happened in in downtown Seattle on 2nd Avenue, I believe it was. Uh, This is maybe three years ago. And, um, you know, there was just a a avalanche of of media coverage around it. There's the the mayor at the time. It was going around every single business, you know, asking people if they were okay. uh, I think it was in our, our local news cycle for about, you know, two weeks or so. And, you know, I'm not saying that it, it shouldn't have been, but then you contrast that with, you know, a, a shooting that happened at a few years uh, later at, um, I believe it was a, a middle school game, high school, uh, a PE league football game. Um, and, you know, thankfully nobody was hurt, but just the fact that there, you know, there were children present and could have potentially been hurt. And the fact is that when there are, you know, uh, shootings of, of folks who that are are killed over in the south end it doesn't quite get that the same level if you will of uh just empathy and compassion it, it seems very asymmetrical uh, when it when it comes to that i re- remember covering a story of a, a young man who i happened to go to high school with uh, latrell williams and um he was shot and killed um nobody to this day, uh, nobody knows exactly what happens. He was, uh, uh, and the news media treated him like a statistic. It was, you know, buried if, if not, if, if, you know, not mentioned at all in, in, in many places. And yet, you know, this, you know, this young man had a, a mother. He was a, a single father who was trying to raise his, uh, son, um, on his own. And, it, you know, does, he also not deserve the same level of dignity and, and grace and, and attention, you know, to his case as, as other cases. But the fact that it happened in, in there, you know, in Skyway where, you know, not a lot of people necessarily um, give a lot of coverage to uh, normally anyhow, uh, you know, definitely played, a, I think, a huge factor in that. I've, you know, I'll say I've talked to young journalists um, at a variety of locations who say when they bring up certain things, you know, happening in um, Skyway or Rainier Beach or, um, heck, uh, you know, Mount Baker or Beacon Hill, they're, you know, what they get back from certain editors is, well, how would this actually, you know, why would somebody from Magnolia or Denny Blaine, you know, care about this? How do we, you know, how, uh, you know, how can you write this story or, or convey to them, right, that this actually matters? And, you know, I wonder how many times, <laughs> the, the reverse is true in, in an editorial meeting where they're saying, okay, well, how does this story actually impact and um, affect and um, uh, how can we make it of concern to folks in Rainier Beach and, um, and, and Skyway? So uh, I, I'd say that's, um, you know, that's, that's definitely an, an, issue, an issue that continues in, in terms of sort of the asymmetry of, of what matters and what does not. Thanks, Marcus. Palantula? There's um, there's a great story that I just reread um, in the Columbia Journalism Review that talked about the recent heat wave and the visual coverage of how that story was told. So 
um, and this is how news happens, right? Something happens in the world or in the community and newsrooms everywhere look at it and start figuring out what's the questions that we need to be asking, who is it impacting? And the criticism on that heat wave on how it was visually presented was a lot of the starting points was the golden retriever lapping and playing in a fountain and, you know, other kids maybe frolicking near the water, uh, white children frolicking in the water, sort of the like the inconvenience of the heat wave. Oh, shoot. I don't have air conditioning in my office, which are all legitimate starting points. What what happens is where, where is the immediate of the unsheltered and how that's feeling, you know, how that's impacting that population, uh, the person who's incarcerated. What's the situation there? The agricultural worker. And and when these stories present themselves, the importance of having different people in the room, not only pitching stories or thinking about those audiences, but then signing off on those stories. If you don't have that, uh, that mindset while you're trying to figure out what's the story of the day and how am I going to present it, and also thinking about who the audience is, which is what Marcus is getting at, is sort of um, this, this angle this this impact of the story may be appropriate for this audience, but let's have a broader lens of who the audience is, because there may be those of us who are tied to agricultural workers and are thinking about our family members who are out there in the heat or thinking about the unhoused. Uh, that is, I think, the, the the responsibility that we have as journalists that hasn't always been front and center. Right. Like who is the we that we're talking about? Right. Right. And I, I, I can I say not the we. Right. We're not the we. And um, from again, because I'm in, in radio and and from the broadcast angle, one thing that's really uh, bothered me, frankly, uh, that I hear and I'm often sending emails to the network uh, because we have a lot of these discussions in, in the newsroom that I'm in. And I'm really proud of our reporters and our hosts who ask these questions. But um is uh, something like the replacement of derogatory names, the the movement to change the geographical uh, names that are happening in the country, right? Um, Why do we need to hear the slur? Do we need to hear the slur for a slur for an indigenous woman? Can we just get away with calling it the SQ word and then assume that the listener is intelligent enough to know exactly what we're talking about? This is a story that's been ongoing and ongoing. Uh, For certain ears, hearing the slur may not make a difference. But for other people's ears, it is really offensive and hurtful. And so who's your audience? What's the right thing to do? Uh, Time and time again, that's, that's the issue that we're facing is that, you know, it's that cringe. It's that awful, like, why do I need to stomach this? Why do I need to have to stomach this kind of framing or stomach that this question wasn't asked or this person wasn't represented fully or this angle wasn't there. You know, when you say essential worker, who are you thinking about? Um, And again, it goes back to, I think, um, input from your listeners and your viewers who are, are noticing that and, and maybe calling you out for not doing your job. And then also input from people around the table, making the decisions. Thanks, Wendela. 
Um, so shifting gears a little bit um, to talk about some of the challenges that exist for for journalism, particularly independent journalism. Um, what are the primary challenges, as you see it, facing journalism as it relates to confronting racism and covering our communities more accurately and completely? Flangel, do you want to start since I've been starting with Marcus? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is really the complexion of newsrooms, really just having more lived experiences, um, a more racially diverse group of uh, storytellers, whether they are the reporters out in the field, whether the editors, the photographers, copy editors, all of it, it matters. Um, again, you, the best storytelling is especially for a general audience, you want more people who reflect the region that you're serving, the audience that you're serving. And so that's how you come up with good ideas. That's how you talk through your stories. And that's how you catch yourself after the fact that you're not missing a viewpoint. Um, I think that's the most critical thing. I mean, and you know, Naomi, I know because you've been in the business a long time when we used to work together is this is not a new thing. Um, we, we've been talking about this for a long time, that if this is the reason why you need to have more journalists of color in your newsrooms, it, it's as simple as we're going to notice things that are missing. We're going to ask those questions. It's we can't help it uh, because it's we're thinking of our family and our friends and our circles and our neighborhoods. We're thinking about our Rainier Valleys versus our Magnolias. Um, and that's informative. And we're also ready to um, intersect all of those lenses on all on an array of subjects and beats, because that's the other challenge is that, yes, you can have a, a, a reporter covering uh, a certain community in the um, in the in the newsroom. But is that reporter also having a voice on broader issues, the biggest story of the day? Or are they themselves being marginalized into a certain section of the paper or a certain segment um, on a broadcast? Uh, that's kind of an afterthought. How, how central are they? How central is their coverage so that it is receiving maximum exposure? Yeah, and I just I just wanted to add and completely agree with everything you just said. I think you know, as we bring more, more journalists of color into our newsrooms, like, I don't think there's ever been a time where there's been more ways in which journalists can be harassed and threatened and otherwise targeted and especially journalists of color. And I think as we bring those more folks, as we should, we have to figure out ways in which we can make it so that it's not a terrible, toxic um, experience for them as well. Right. And I think we haven't really cracked the code on that. And we're still working on trying to, to attack that, but I, I think it's going to be very, very hard. Right. Oh, and I would say, and also acknowledging that you don't have one Latina reporter who represents the entire community is that <laughs> there's a multi, you know, people are multidimensional. People have different backgrounds. You could have five Latinas in a newsroom and you're still not doing enough because everybody comes from a different place and a different class and a different background. And that's also some of the, some of the, the, the work that we need to do as leaders in the, in the industry. Yeah. Marcus. Yeah, I just only, well, one, I would just second every single thing that both of you said. I, I would say also just making sure that when the folks are in those newsrooms, that they're actually, as Florangela said, actually empowered to do something. I mean, it it doesn't matter how many folks you have sort of in the, um, you know, the more menial roles, but do you have, you know, a 
folks of color in, in upper management? Do you have folks at the executive editor position level? And, and do they actually have legitimate power? Are they be just being tokenized, right? I mean, there's that whole, um, there's been a whole uh, kerfuffle around the New, New York Times editor that they, you know, they went from a black man in, in Dean Bouquet, who I, I know had his faults, as we all do, <laughs> uh, to sort of the, uh, you know, back to what has been sort of standard in um, in the media industry. We have, I, I think, one poll that I saw it said there's 82, it's 82 percent white and 63 percent male. Um, how how can you at all ever hope to, uh, you know, build trust within a community when, you know, the people who are the liaisons, if you will, and, and mediators for what um, for what, you know, uh, is told about a community um, you know, don't share a life experience, don't share com- complexion, and, and many times, you know, don't share the the same levels of understandings uh, within a community. And so, for, uh, I, I think one of the harder parts too is trying to get a build a pipeline um, for folks to into journalism. Right? I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and they were asking advice. Uh, they're, they're, they'll be graduating from high school soon, and they said they they would love to be a journalist, but why in the world would they actually want to? major in journalism at the University of Washington or SU or, or elsewhere, you know, you, they get a four degree, four year degree going into debt 30 to $40,000 or more, um, uh, you know, for a position that may or may not exist when they get out. And so why not go into something else, especially being from a place like South Seattle that uh, why not go into another major, or another industry that they know can actually um, make money? And so I think we also have to solve that problem as well. How do we how do we get folks, you know, in the door who, uh, you know, with who may maybe, you know, don't have necessarily a traditional haven't followed a traditional pathway, if you will, into journalism? And how do we create opportunities for them? Um, and, and how do we make, it, you know, entering into this industry much more accessible for folks? That's such a great point, Marcus. I think that that cost benefit calculation is so real for so many people. And we've, we've kind of overvalued some things and way undervalued other things where, whereas a person's experience, you know, and their perspective is, is valuable enough. Um, So I want to move on, ask how you, how you think the media could be used to disrupt racism and what you think is the road to change. And then what, what you do in your role to kind of, you know, bend that arc. Um, Marcus, when'd you start? Okay. I was, I was going to have Flora Angela go since I, I went the first two times first. I was, I was, I was trying to be equitable here since it's all about <laughs> equity, but, um, <laughs> but no, um, I think, you know, one of the things that the media can simply do is, is to tell the truth, right. To tell the truth and, and not have sort of this false, um, binary, right. That, uh, where it's, uh, well, I got to hear also from, this other side or, or whatever. Uh, and when it comes to does racism actually exist? And, and, you know, I mean, I think we can call things what they are. And I think one of the hardest things about uh, 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 media as a journalism, as a business, I'll say, is that, right. It's always going to be more lucrative to tell people what they want to hear versus telling people what they need to hear. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons uh, quite frankly, that I uh, did, uh, found the South Seattle Emerald as a nonprofit as opposed to a for-profit business so that it could be more mission-driven, so that it could continue to sort of align with, um, you know, the, the values that we have, which is just trying to shine a light on society, to, to go to where the darkness is and to reveal the light. Um, 
And unfortunately, that, that does mean that we get a lot of criticism and um, uh, it was just called. I got an email being called the N-word just last week, as a matter of fact, for some of our coverage. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, what we can do is just, you know, truly speak the truth. There's a, you know, there's a saying that the, one of the biggest issues that is wrong with America and our society at this moment is the fact that it, just nobody can it can agree on what the truth actually is. And I think, you know, we just need to, as we move forward, um, we just need to continue to reiterate the truth day in and day out every single day. Thanks, Marcus. Laurentula? Yeah, my turn to say amen, uh, Marcus. Um, I mean, I think, you know, We there is so much contention over the differences that we have among us. And while that is true, I think it's our responsibility to lean in and explain who people are fully um, and give people a, a better sense of the life that people are living and the struggles that they're facing and the systems that they are uh, faced with and the racism that is happening. Um, I think, uh, you know, more accountability journalism. I think that that's also the power of investigative work uh, because um, sometimes it takes a lot of stories uh, to be presented to a listener or a viewer who refuses to acknowledge that there's systems in place that are racist. Um, but it's hard to um, ignore if you have a lot of the facts and you're showing trends, and you're presenting the data, and you're just putting it out there and saying, why is this happening to this person versus this person over this many years? Um, And I think those stories uh, take time, and they take resources, uh, but they they are deserving. And and that's, that's how I think you just keep doing it and doing it, and you don't get tired um, and you have a support system around the journalists too, because it's going to be hard and um, infuriating. And also you will be uh, faced with attacks. Um, and I'm sorry to hear Marcus that uh, what you were just called last week. And I, we get, I'm sure we could spend a lot of time revisiting some of the ugliness that all three of us have had um, in our roles as journalists covering stories. Um but I, I will also say that uh, it's important for uh, listeners and viewers and audiences when you see work that you like and that you think is valuable to acknowledge that in, in an email, an email to your reporter's boss, uh, in a membership, in a subscription, all those ways, because that really matters. And that is how you can um, buoy us and support the work that's being done. That's such a great point, Flora. And I, I think people don't realize what an impact those kinds of comments have in those emails. Um, I think people think, oh, no one really cares what I think, but people really do. And for every one of those that we get, there's probably about 50, at least in my case, there's like 50 that are like, I'm canceling my subscription because of you. So it's really helpful to hear <laughs> to hear that sort of um, positive reinforcement. So the last question we had before we go to the audience questions was, how can the public or our audience here support community media and help to ensure that our media covers our communities more accurately and thoroughly? I was just going to say support local journalism, help fund it, pay, pay you know, pay for it, uh, 
pay for it through email, pay, pay it, pay for it through uh, retweeting a tweet and acknowledging why you liked a story, join in an event and support and help, you know, publicize that. But really, I cannot um, underscore enough what power a single email from a listener or a reader has in our organization. And I know it matters in any and every organization I've ever worked. Those positive emails mean a lot. It doesn't matter if the person is a, you know, a longtime leadership circle member or the casual listener who happens to listen. It, it means a lot. Um, and it's also just good for our own psyches that we're doing something right um, and that we're valued. Yeah, you're here. I would also say just any financial support that you can give to organizations like KNKX, the South Seattle Emerald, Converge, um, wherever, uh, you know, there's a huge resource gap between uh, organizations like ours that, you know, I, I feel are, are trying to do uh, great work and an organization like, let's say, the Sinclairs of the world who um, have a different tact. And so I, I think the the, mo- the more that we can close that resource gap, the better. And it uh, boils down at the end of the day to finances. Yeah. And I, and I would just throw in too, and I completely agree with both of you that, you know, there's so many entities that I don't agree with a hundred percent of the things that they write or say, but I support them with my, with my, my dollars and my retweets, because I know that having their, their eyes on our city, having their um, perspective on what's going on in our government is beneficial to me as a reader. The, the more eyes looking at what our, you know, city council or mayor are doing um, is is better for all of us. That the people that are going to be the happiest if there was no local journalism are the people that we're trying to hold accountable. And I think it's really important that, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, I didn't like what this person wrote, so I'm not going to support them anymore. And my, my thing is, yeah, you can vote with your dollars, but I want to see that entity. I want to see all the media entities survive. Like I want to see them all thriving and healthy and doing what they do, whether or not I agree with them hundred percent or not all the time. Um, so can I add one thing? Yeah. Cause I'm wondering if it, <laughs> it's probably going to sound very truthful to you is also um, you might not like what we're reporting, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but don't start out with the hate because that just turns into a shouting match and every journalist I know is trying. So instead of saying, I don't understand why you hate, why you did that. Maybe the better question is, uh, please explain. Instead of like, I don't like it. I don't understand why you did something. And, and this is directly for communities of color. Cause it happened to me, um, in my own community, uh, when I was covering race is, Sometimes there are stories that are happening within our communities that is the dirty laundry that nobody wants to talk about, that nobody wants uncovered, and those are really hard to do. And there's a preference for not talking about it. But when those stories are done, uh, support those stories because it, it's, it, is, it is important work. It doesn't matter, uh, uh, especially in accountability reporting. It doesn't matter who's doing the wrong. Uh, the wrong needs to be um, uh, acknowledged and reported on. That's a, such a great point, Florentula. And I think people don't understand either how, how frightening and vulnerable it is as a, you know, reporter, journalist of color covering those kinds of stories and how it, how kind of cast 
in the sea you feel in those situations. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really hard. Um, so we have some great audience questions that I want to get to. Um, the first one is really great, which is how are journalists shifting with the acknowledgement that there is no quote objective perspective um, and how has that changed your work and the stories that you write? Um, Marcus, you want to start on that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, and while I, I think and I agree that you know, for the most part, uh, historically, objectivity has really just been white male subjectivity in um, <laughs> at least in American journalism. I think what you can be, and this is what I tell all of our journalists, is what you can be and need to be is fair. You need to be accurate um, and you need to your job is to find the best obtainable version of the truth as you can find it. Right. And, and that's obviously that's going to potentially change Wednesday, you know, uh, versus Thursday versus Friday. But at the end of the day, what you can do, what, what you want the reader to know is that you were doing your best at, 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 at all possible at all times to be as truthful and as accurate and as fair as possible. And I think, you know, that's just, that's a practice that ultimately, um, you know, will never go out of style. Thanks, Marcus. Laura? Yeah, and I, I guess I would say, um, you know, we're fortunate, our medium is fortunate that we get to carry conversations uh, with people. Um, and that is a different type of storytelling, but it adds to the context and the knowledge that uh, uh, straight ahead and I say straight ahead because it's a news story, something that's happening, legislation, and you present it and you acknowledge who's for it and who's against it. But a second or a third take could be a deeper dive in a conversation about the impact legislation could have. And that may not need the equal weight of two and a half minutes of this person's perspective and two and a half minutes of that person's perspective. And if it is their if they, if it is a thoughtful conversation, if the questions are um, multidimensional, it can be a very uh, good, uh, worthwhile uh, story for a person, regardless of their viewpoint. Um, and you follow that with another conversation, maybe on a different day. Uh, but you, not every story needs to have every side in it to be a valuable and journalistically correct uh, presentation of, of the news and information. Thanks, Laura. Marcus, um, as I feared, we have way more questions than we have time, and they're really good, so I wish we could have another hour, but we don't. Um, but why don't we just finish um, with this question about local journalism? Is local journalism a more reliable source than national journalism? Yes. I would say, I mean, if you, if you want to know what's happening in your community, Yes. Um, and that is why I think we're so, all of us are champions of our, our profession and, and are stubborn and we won't leave and we're just dogged and trying to make it better is because there are so many communities that don't have daily journalism and they don't have accountability reporting. And that means that people are suffering or are not getting their voices heard. And so uh, I think all of us care about what's happening in our neighborhood and in our community. And so, yes, local journalism in that sense is it's also, you know, a, a, a notion of the people who are putting that product together, the way we're putting our newscast together, we're thinking about you and why this national story may matter to you locally. So we're we're with you. We we have a common starting point. So in that sense, that is why I think you do need to 
You need to subscribe to the Seattle Times. You need to listen to KKX. You need to support the South Seattle Emeralds because the starting point is the same is we are here. We are with you. We want you to be informed and well-rounded individuals. Marcus? Florangela dropped the mic. I don't, other than saying yes, I no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think the, the more proximate you are to something, right? I think the, the more trustworthy you're more likely to be. And just the fact that you have a, that local journalists for the most part, you know, have a vested interest, you know, in their communities, they, they want to see, you know, their communities improved and, and advanced and, you know, uh, hopefully tell a very accurate and authentic story because they know that, you know, if uh, that they have to be accountable to the community that they serve versus, uh, you know, a, a national journalist potentially who's parachuting in and not to be you know seen or heard from again. So. Yep, I completely agree. And and you can kind of tell when you read some of these national stories about Seattle and you're like, wait, they put Bellevue where? Like, you know, but it's because if you're not from here, it does not say only people from here can write good journalism about this area, but it definitely helps to have eyes and ears on the ground and people that know that the region. Um, thank you so much, Florangel Marcus. Um, you were amazing as we fully expected. And um, I've got to turn it back over to Lee Rochelle, but thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge and, and being a champion for local journalism because we absolutely need it. So thank you. Thank you as well, Naomi. Thanks, Naomi. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. Bye. Oh, my. Well, I, I'm just, what an excellent conversation. I just wish that we had even more time to go more deeply. I think I'll just have to invite all of you to dinner at my house and then I can selfishly continue this conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Naomi and Florangela and Marcus. Uh, We just so appreciate your sharing your knowledge and your experience with us and your work to help us eliminate racism in the media. So we are very grateful. Town Hall Seattle and the People of Color Executive Council of WYCA Seattle King Snohomish presented this 11th annual Seattle area Stand Against Racism event on April 29th. Thank you for listening to this final episode of Speakers Forum. I'm John O'Brien. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege to host this series for eight years. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, KUOW.org slash speakers.